0: What you're about to listen to is an interview with Amy Rupertus Peacock, the granddaughter of General William Henry Rupertus, one of the longest serving Marines of the United States Marine Corps. General Rupertus served during World War I, the Haitian occupation, commanded the China Marines during the Battle of Shanghai, commanded United States Marine Corps forces during the Guadalcanal Campaign, the Battle of Cape Gloucester, the Marianas and Palau Islands Campaign, and the Battle of Peleliu. Amy Rupertus is also the author of the brand new book, Old Breed General, How Marine Corps General William H. Rupertus Broke the Back of the Japanese in World War II from Guadalcanal to Peleliu, co-written with Don Brown. So please check it out at Stackpole Books and all other major booksellers. It'll also be released on Audible. Welcome back to the Pacific War podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host Craig Watson. But before we can even begin, I just need to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much more, so go have a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash Generals. Hey, and if after all that, you're still hungry for some history content, why don't you go give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War Channel at YouTube. Over there, in particular, you'll be able to find video clips from this very interview that you're about to listen to, where it'll showcase exactly what the two interviewees were talking about and parts of their presentation. Check it out. You'll like it. Welcome everyone to the Pacific War podcast, week by week, in association with Kings and Generals, and this is going to be our first interview for the podcast. I am joined here by first Amy Rapertis. If you'd like to introduce yourself a bit,
1: hi there, uh, Craig. Thank you. Uh, my name is Amy Rupertus Peacock, and I am one of the three one of three granddaughters of Major General William H. Rapertis, um, who this. Old General book is about that we just wrote. And uh, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina.
0: And we're also joined here by her co-author, Don Brown, former Navy JAG officer. And, uh, you've written now 15 amazing books. The last one I could see here was the last fighter pilot. Please,
2: Well, thank you, Craig. Thanks for the work that you do and, uh, and the Kings and generals. Thanks for all the, the diligent work for keeping these stories alive. Um, Amy and I are excited about this work on a grandfather, Oldbury General. I think it's going to uh, open a lot of eyes and, uh, you know, reveal a lot of historical facts that occurred uh, during the Pacific campaign. General Rapportis commanded the 1st Marine Division longer than any other general in the the Pacific War and um, was responsible for our first victory on the ground in the pacific war among other things so we're excited about it i'm very very grateful that you're having us today and uh, hope that your listeners and your viewers uh, for those who are going to be seeing this on one of the channels and for your listeners uh enjoy our presentation and get something out of it we really appreciate it
0: and stating that we can state what the subject matter is your grandfather and your book that's now coming out if you'd like to say a little bit about the book perhaps where they can find it
1: well, our, our book is available everywhere online. Um, and and it's, it's
0: the,
2: the book is entitled Old Breed General, by the way. I didn't mean to cut you in Old Breed General.
1: Yeah, you, I thought, thought I Give
2: like us that. the title there, Amy. Let's start there. Right,
1: right, Old Breed General. And it is um, available everywhere online. It's supposed to be released February 1, 2022. Um, the Kindle version has already been released, though. So people are oh. diving into that. Um and uh, yeah, we've been working on the story for a couple generations, but really hunkering down for the last six years um, to get the facts um, it aligned with all that we have in our trunks. And, um, you know, the photos, the diaries, the letters um, are just uh, very revealing.
2: And so, also an, an audio version will be available as well. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know when that release date is. I think it's going to be contemporaneously with the hard, back. But so there'll be Kindle audio and hardcover initially. Excellent. Yeah.
1: So you might, if for people who do not know who uh, our grandfather was, Major General um, William H. Purtis, um, I can give you a little bit of uh, background if I should jump ahead in that. Craig?
0: Absolutely. Please tell
1: okay. us. OK, well, um, he he served in the Marine Corps from 1913 to 1945. Um, as Don said, he was the longest serving, um, commanding general of the 1st Marine Division in the Pacific, again, but he died in 1945, so his story has never been told until now. Um, he is born in Washington, D.C. to a German-American family in the German-American community that was, uh, very active in the early part of the 1900s, late 1850s to early part of 1900s, and, um, his parents were uh, shop owners, and they were very involved with the German orphanage that was there and German church. And actually a lot of the Rupert's family is buried in a section of Washington called Prospect um, Cemetery, Prospect Hill. And it's neat to go there and see those old graves. Uh, our grandfather is buried at Arlington Cemetery along with a lot of my family. So, um, but he is probably uh, known for writing the Rifleman's Creed that um, Marines, he he wrote that right after uh, the Japanese bombed us at Pearl Harbor. And as an expert rifleman, he felt that uh, uh, the Marines, uh, young Marines flooding the system really needed to slow down and get to know their rifles better because he knew the enemy, which we'll get into, he knew the Japanese enemy. And he also knew that these Marines were gonna go to the Pacific where, um, you know, (laughs) <laughs> we know about the Pacific, it was pretty rough uh, conditions. So he wrote the Rifleman's Creed. He was the commanding, uh, assistant division commander, and then the commanding, division, commanding officer, division commander of the 1st Marine Division from Tulagi, well, really New River, North Carolina, um, when the 1st Marine D- Division really formed, and then um, through Tulagi, Cape Gloucester, and Kalaloo. Well, you got Tulagi, Guadalcanal, Cape Gloucester, and Peleliu. Um, he's also might um, be interesting to people in the, who love the Pacific War history. He served um, in China and Peking in the late 1920s, and he uh, went back to Shanghai in 1937. And he was there during uh, the bombing of Shanghai when the Japanese attacked Shanghai. He was part of the Fourth Marine Division, also known as the China Marines protecting the uh, American se- sector, the international settlements. Um, and then finally, um, he was the namesake of USS Reprotus, which served um, our country from 1945 to 1973. It's a destroyer. Um, and it was in some uh, great battles. And we sold that ship to uh, Greece and they used it, the ship, until about 1994. I wasn't aware of that. That's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So um, his son um, is my father. Um, his first family died in Peking of a scarlet fever epidemic. And um, his wife and two children all died. He was quarantined. Um, when he eventually came back a couple years later, he met my grandmother, Sleepy, who was much younger. And they had my dad in 1939. And my dad went on to, or our dad went on to be a, he graduated from the Naval Academy in 1962 and then became a Marine officer. So that's a little bit about our family. Um, Fascinating
0: so. stuff. And it really shows how interesting he was, you know, as a character because to have served in the China Marines before the Pacific War, it really made him unique compared to most most of the United States, or even in Great Britain, a lot, of, a lot of the generals and admirals had no knowledge of the Japanese and greatly underestimated them. But uh, your grandfather's someone who saw it firsthand.
1: Yes. And he, um, so growing up in back to Washington, he um, was a cadet at the McKinley Technical School. Um, so that was high school. And then he joined the DC National Guard, worked in the naval gunnery. After he served there, he joined as an enlisted man and immediately got promoted to an officer, not immediately, but pretty soon after. And then he joined um, the US Revenue Cutter Service Academy, which um, is the predecessor to the Coast Guard Academy. Mm -hmm. And he served there for three years, uh, traveled the world on his summer tours, and um, uh, basically graduated second in his class of 14 But on a medical, we discovered this. We didn't know this previously until this research journey, but he got a diagnosis of Bright's disease. So he's in his early twenties and he was told the Naval or the revenue cutters doctor said, you're going to die in five years. We can't take you on. And, you know, it just was devastating. And so he resigned. And then a few weeks later he joined the Marine Corps. He signed up to be an officer in the Marine Corps. He's, I, I guess he decided he just would give his life to the country and um, he served the Marine Corps for 35 years and you know, obviously didn't die in five years. So, um, so back to um, he, that, so after he was in uh, the Marine Corps, he served on the rifleman's team. They immediately picked these a couple officers up to compete on the rifleman's te- team from about 1913 to 1915. So that you can see he's developing. He worked as naval gunnery. He's working at the rifleman or on the rifle team. He's becoming this expert rifleman. Then he gets pulled away to go on the USS Florida, which was going to help our allies in, uh, in Europe, and he spent some time on the USS Florida, and we've actually got a huge diary from that. It's very hard to read because I imagine he was on the ship, and I don't know if he he couldn't write as evenly on the waves, but um, we do have a diary, diary from that. It's not in the book, but because um, we dropped the reader in World War II. But mm-hmm. um, so moving forward, he he was on the USS Florida, and then they asked him to go to Haiti. Yeah, um, I found
0: that very surprising, that the uh, small side mission where he was involved in Haiti for three years, I think.
1: Yeah, well, the you know, the what I've read and they're very different reports, but you know, the Germans were in Haiti, most, I don't know if people know that, but they were, and that's pretty close to the U.S. So um, there was that threat of not only instability of the Haitian government, but the threat of the Germans um, being a little too close. And so he was there to help, you know, he he helped establish the Guard to Haiti. And um, also he was chief of the police there um, and that was accompanied so his wife and children were there his first wife and children were in Haiti as well so we've got letters from the Haitian president at the time like hand signed and um, lots of photos from them too again only a few are in the book but you can see his career is building up all over you know the world yeah. so next up he he has a few other duties uh, back back in the states and then he is Gets his first Far East assignment to go to Peking, China, to again guard the Peking legation, the American sector of the Peking legation. And it was a fairly calm time during 1929 to 1931 when he was there.
0: It's just after the Northern Expedition. So... Chiang Kai-shek is kind of consolidating himself at this point. Yeah, I guess it's mm-hmm. a, in Chinese terms, it's a little more stable than usual.
1: <laughs> right, right. Um, and um, he spent some time with uh, Roy Chapman at Andrews, I don't know if you're familiar with that name, um, but he no. was an explorer at the, at the Gobi Desert. And oh. um, yeah, and he helped the Marines out. He, they, as a result of him being an the explorer, they would leave gas all around, um, China and the Gobi Desert, and so very, you know, could map map China pretty well. Wow. And um, so he and another um, officer, Pete Hill, um, did a lot of exploration. So Bill was friends with them, or my grandfather, General Purgis, was friends with them, um, and did all sorts of exploring during the semi-calm time. Um, but unfortunately, uh, just months after they arrived, um, his In 1929, his daughter, right before Christmas, his little daughter, um, Ann Rodney, was diagnosed with scarlet fever and she died within two days. And then February, they came around to February. My grandfather's quarantine, and his wife, Marguerite, who was 38, and his um, son, Will Jr., who's 14, got scarlet fever and they died within 24 hours each year of each other in February, um, 1930. So, you know, I could only imagine how he felt losing his family and it was really hard for me to get through these chapters writing. Um, but I found um, an interview of uh, someone who's a surgeon during that time and he um, talked about Rupertus and um, how he responded and he was just devastated and people didn't see him for about two weeks, and then he knew this is he's coming out of quarantine. He didn't get he didn't for whatever reason scarlet fever didn't take him down, but it took his family down. His family was shipped back to Washington. They're buried at Arlington Cemetery. Um, there are two if you have his grave, and then there are two little graves um, for his children. Um, anyway, he stayed on, and he couldn't leave. They didn't have an office. Os- officer to replace him at the time. The Marine Corps was pretty small back then. And I'm not sure, I mean, looking at now with COVID and everything, I'm not sure he could leave because they didn't want to transmit. I don't know, you know, Um, but supposedly he lived right next to Holcomb at the time. And so Holcomb who went on to be commandant, um, uh, General Holcomb um, got to see how, how my grandfather, you know, rallied and I, I, I don't know what it'd be like to go through losing your whole family, but somehow he he managed to power on, and um, that's kind of the description of his whole life. You know, he just somehow, you know, powered on. So um, anyway, so he came back uh, back from uh, Peking, and he again worked a desk duty for a little bit, um, and then the person on his way back from China, he had met um, Joe Hill. On a naval hospital ship that took him back to the United States, and Joe Hill had a uh, niece named Sleepy Hill um, who thought Bill Rupertus would Major Rupertus would be a good match for. Her. So, um, long story short, Sleepy and Bill got married um, in 1933 on the day that Roosevelt was inaugurated, back in March March 3rd, I think March 3rd or 4th, um, when they used to do the U.S. inauguration um, in March. Um, so any questions so far?
0: None thus far. It's, uh, okay. it's incredible that he was able to overcome the grief of losing his entire family in a foreign country, mind you too. It's, uh, tra- it's tragic.
1: Yeah. Well, um, then I, right after one thing I want to mention, um, that I think is important for people to know if they don't know is that um, right when, right after he came back, the Japanese um, bombed Shaipé, the suburb of Shanghai, Mm -hmm. and killed, uh, I guess, over a thousand people. And to me, that's kind of the beginning of the the beginning. I don't, uh, he wasn't there during that time, but surely he heard about it. Um, And by 1938, he was back in China. Uh, the Marine Corps sent him back to China because of the experience he had, I guess, in China before. And he brought Sleepy, which is kind of crazy after losing his first family in China, he brought his new wife. Well, they've been married for a while now, but, um, and they, from the pictures, it looks like they had quite a nice time with international settlement, you know, Shanghai was very uh, uh, a great place to be, very international, um, lots of people to meet. Um, so they they went out and then, and had fun at the French club and all the old places where people used to enjoy um, going out and having dinners and dancing. Um, but then on August 17, 1937, the Japanese bombed Shanghai and everything changed overnight. Um, our grandfather, the Marines went on alert, um, Admiral Yarno Henry Yarnell, who was uh, the commanding officer, the Naval officer in the command there, um, sent out a notice that all uh, wives and Marines that could leave needed to leave, evacuate immediately. To, and uh, so my grandfather went to the Philippines um, where her sister was with her um, Navy husband. And she was there um, while the Marines stayed behind um, my grandfather and the Marines. He was CEO of the 4th Marine Division then. Um, And so they uh, were protecting this uh, three and a half mile sector, the American sector of the international settlement. Um, And it was very, very tense um, because they could see the Japanese as the Marines were guarding them, guarding the sector, um, they could see the Japanese doing what they were doing to the Chinese and um, the violence that was happening, but they couldn't do anything. They were told to hold fire Um,
0: To add a bit of gravity, uh, a lot of my audience have heard a previous podcast. I did cover the Battle of Shanghai. But to just remind people, the Japanese were thrown into Shanghai. And there is, as you say, the international settlement of most of the great powers had uh, their own foreign legations there. Chiang Kai-shek had an ingenious and tragic plan to put the cream of the crop of his military all into Shanghai all at once to try and make a show that China would stand against the Japanese, and this inevitably led to some of the most devastating bloodshed in the Second Sino-Japanese War. And there were parts of the international settlement, uh, the British parts, where there was a creek, the Zhuzhou Creek is just beside them, so they literally saw with their eyes the Japanese fighting at a place like the Si Hang Warehouse. Uh, It's a famous movie right now, The 800, which covered this battle. It's uh, very tragic and uh, i can only imagine the things that your grandfather saw it must have been horrifying
1: yeah so to to clarify for in case the audience isn't aware the um these these um international settlements were kind of like uh, island enclaves where um european businesses and americans and japanese did business with the chinese um and uh and Every uh, country brought in their different guards to guard the um, the sector of um, that they managed, and so yeah, our grandfather um, and the Marines witnessed some brutal, awful battles in Socho Creek. People trying to escape and just being shot, and um, people being bayoneted, pregnant women being bayoneted. You, I just don't want to get. It was so evil. Um, but and I heard, I, I can't verify this. There's a, a China Marine friend of mine, uh, Dirk Haig, who's an S- expert. He runs the China Marine website. Um, and um, he said that it was so stressful for some Marines that they committed suicide because they couldn't respond and they would get shrapnel hit at them. They witnessed uh, brutality they'd never seen before. Um, you know, officers, Marine officers, um, Colonel Price wrote home to Marine headquarters that he'd never wist- witnessed anything as bad um, or read about anything as bad. It was worse than the Huns, he said. Yeah. Uh, he said, yeah. If, if we don't take care of them here, they're going to come to our shores. Yeah. And then Admiral Yarnell wrote whole whole um, about a four-page letter back to um, the headquarters in the United States and just said, we are facing something that is is not going to stand down and we need to be prepared. So they're all, this is 1937. And, you know, we don't, the Japanese do come near our shores at least in America or Pearl Harbor in 1941. But this was already happening. And and so it was a pretty intense time. Um, Sleepy finally, and the woman could finally came back. um, I think around December, the records are really spotty from when they came, but I, I have pictures of them walking around with a Japanese general um, seeing the devastation of Shanghai. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's it's really something in history that, you know, as I was researching this, I was so surprised that so few people knew about, um, whether it's the bombing of Shanghai or, or the rape of King, um uh, It just... Uh, was startling to me. And even some Marines I talked to didn't know about it. And um, I think it's fascinating history. It's sad history, but it's pretty fascinating. So anyway, that all this leads up to our grandfather who has had all this experience in Peking and Haiti and um, the revenue, revenue cutter school and the rifle team. And next thing you know, after they come back from China, from Shanghai, they finally come back in 1938. They have my dad in 1939. He's CEO of the Marine Barracks in Washington, D.C. Um, and then he goes out to San Diego and he's in San Diego uh, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And he immediately gets promoted to the CEO of that base. Um, Colonel Aherst gets promoted, who was his boss. That is when our grandfather wrote. Um, the Marine Corps or the right my rifle uh, the Creed of a United States Marine um, thousands of men were flooding the system to go fight the Japanese in the Pacific and um, gearing up for war and like I said uh, earlier our grandfather knew this enemy pretty closely he had seen what they what they were capable of and he knew these young Marines the, I guess they were 17 18 probably some were 16 um, you know, we're ripper and ready to go, but they need to kind of slow down, pick up that rifle and get to know it a little better because he knew that it would not only save them, but also save their, their brother or that they were fighting next to in the Pacific. Um, when you're boots on the ground, you've got, you know, your knife, you probably got a grenade, you've got a, a you know, rifle. And um, uh, so he wrote this rifle in the screen and I'd love to read it. if Of course. Okay. <laughs> so... Here it goes, My Rifle, The Creed of the United States Marine by General William H. Rupertus. This was first published in the uh, March 14, 1942 in the Marine Corps San Diego Chevron. And it reads like this. This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. Without me, my rifle is useful, useless. Without my rifle, I am useless. I must fire my rifle true. I must shoot straighter than my enemy who is trying to kill me. I must shoot him before he shoots me. I will. My rifle and I know that what counts in war is not the rounds we fire, the noise of our burst, nor the smoke we make. We know that it is the hits that count. We will hit. My rifle is human even as I am human because it is my life. Thus, I will learn it as a brother, I will learn its weaknesses, its strengths, its parts, its accessories, its sights, and its barrel. I will keep my rifle clean and ready, even as I am clean and ready. We will become part of each other, we will. Before God, I swear this creed, my rifle and I are the defenders of my country, we are the masters of our enemy, we are the saviors of my life. So be it, until victory is America's, and there is no enemy but peace. Marines recited that for years at uh, boot camp. It's been in some movies, probably most notably full, full Metal
0: Jacket, of course. Yeah, that scene is pretty. Everyone knows it from there.
1: Yeah, pretty, yeah. Um, but it's a pretty powerful. And he really wanted it to be not something that he preached, but something that Marines felt so deeply um, that it just became a uh, part of them. So after that, he leaves. San Diego and joins General Vandegrift in New River, North Carolina, in March uh, 1942, and they gear up. They're gearing these Marines to get ready to go to the Pacific. Um, Vandegrift's echelon. They split forces because the transportation was so tough. We were battling two fronts. You know, Europe, Europe, and the Pacific. So um, General Vandegrift took uh, the division commander took the his echelon from. Uh, New River to Norfolk, they left, went around the Panama Canal, stopped off in Panama to pick up some booze for the Marines (laughs) and went on their way. Meanwhile, our grandfather went across the country and Marines uh, via train to um, to San Francisco and they shipped out from there. So his echelon. And then they all arrived in New Zealand. And uh, basically, they were told that, the, that they would be in ba- going to battle in, within six months. You know, once they got to New Zealand, they'd have six months to train, get comfortable in the Pacific. And um, well, the truth is the Joint Chiefs said, oh, no, <laughs> we just found out the Japanese are building a base on Quava Canal, and we need you to get there in August. So my grandfather's, his echelon arrived in July, and within days, he had to turn around and... Uh, some of the Marines didn't even get off the ship, his Marines, and they had to go to um, uh, the operations area where they were going to begin training outside of Fiji Islands. So I, I went really fast, but I want to have time for Don to jump in, um, my excellent co-author, to really talk about what we were against. Um, and I mean, we were losing and Don's going to take it from here because we're coming back.
2: Well, I will try to, uh, it's okay at this point, um, Craig, see if I can share this PowerPoint. Let me know you know if you're up. You with me?
0: Yeah, I can see it. And I'll uh, just remind the audience, while okay. this is an audio podcast for Kings and Generals, on my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, I will most likely formulate some clips or other videos to showcase a presentation that they are showing me. And uh, you can check it out later. I think it'll be very exciting for you. Okay. Carry on.
2: All right. Let me sort of pick up from some of the great background Amy's given us. Her grandfather, General Rupertus, is uh, one of the giants uh, in U.S. military history. If there were a Mount Rushmore carved of World War II, and especially the Pacific War, his his visage should be there. But uh, because he died prematurely, we're just learning fully about him now. His background in China, particularly on, in the two stints with the China Marines, but especially in 1937 when he witnessed the massacre at Shanghai, and I know you've talked about it, Craig, but you know, 200,000 or so you know, Chinese killed by the Japanese from August to November of 37, approximately. That's half the number of men that the United States lost in four years in the war. Rupertus witnessed this, he, and so therefore, when he later came to be assigned along with General Vandegrift to build this 1st Marine Division at New River to go and to challenge the Japanese. He had a unique view of the Japanese unlike most general officers. So he knew what they were facing. Now I wanna talk a little bit about, and and for those who can see, there's a picture of the general there. Um, We're showing a photograph now of General Rupertus on the bridge.
0: share screen again? Uh, It seems to have disappeared.
2: Did we lose the screen?
0: Try resharing.
2: Oh, you got it, brother. Stand by just a second. Oh, there we are. We're there?
0: Yeah, perfect.
2: We're, we're showing a picture for those who can see of General Rupertus on board the USS Rupertus. That was the command ship under which the first operation on the ground was launched against the Japanese, which I'll go in just in a second.
1: Um, the USS Neville.
2: Neville, excuse me. The Neville, Neville. Rupertis was, was later. So USS Neville, we're showing a few photographs on board the Neville. Uh, we're showing a photograph now of Amy's grandmother, uh, Sleepy Rupertus, who she mentioned earlier, who married the, the general after he lost his first wife, Marguerite. Now we're showing a picture of his first two children, uh, Will Jr. Um, and, and Rodney, who lost their lives in China to the scarlet fever. And, and you know, so these, these Marines in China knew something of what we're now experiencing with, with, with these uh, coronaviruses long before with something that's even more deadly. I want to talk a little bit about the situation, the military situation, though, in the spring of 1942. Of course, everybody knows, I mean, there's a lot of debate as to when World War II started. It depends on your perspective. In some ways, it may have started in the Pacific with the invasion of Manchuria. The, the Japanese, it just depends on what the historic what historian you talk to. The Japanese have been very aggressive in China. Rupert saw that. We were bombed at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, and the Japanese literally went on a rampage around the Pacific. You know they went to singapore you know they you know they went in, in um into the philippines you, you name it the japanese were basically uh putting a stronghold on the the western pacific really uh without opposition um and they pretty much had their way after december 7th and the united states and the allies were trying to rebuild and trying to get ourselves in a position to challenge them but really until a couple of naval victories. First, we had a kind of a, a draw at Coral Sea. Then there was a great naval victory at Midway in June of 1942, under which, you know, we took out six of their carriers in that miraculous operation, which was a major blow to the Japanese Navy, but not a lethal blow, as we'll see in a moment. Um, things have been pretty slim. But a bigger problem was, you know, General Wainwright had, 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 had surrendered some 70,000 troops, including, uh, you know, Filipinos and some twenty thousand American troops in, in the Philippines—the largest, you know, defeat in the history of the United States military—and uh, so the Japanese had their way on the ground. And while the Navy had pushed back with those, those two marvelous, uh, you know, operations first at Guadalcanal and then even more so at Midway, um, we were reeling, and we needed a victory on the ground. And as Amy pointed out, there's a place called the Solomon Islands. You know, Guadalcanal is, uh, you know, about 2,300 miles from Darwin, about 1,500 miles across the water or so from Brisbane, depending on where you're going in Australia. But the Japanese were using the the Solomon Islands, hopefully for them, as kind of a staging base to move eventually into Australia. And uh, at this place called Guadalcanal, they were building an airstrip, and we couldn't let them do that. So... In August of 1942, August 6th and August 7th of 1942, the U.S. Naval Task Force with uh, 70-some ships is carrying the 1st Marine Division approaching on a northerly course from New Zealand. Amy mentioned that, and there are going to be two task forces who are going to be hitting the Solomon Islands, hopefully by surprise, through the dark. I'm going to talk a little bit about Guadalcanal, uh, because everybody's heard of Guadalcanal, but I'm going to talk about another place right across something called the Iron Bottom Channel, or it used to be called a Sea Lark Channel, from Guadalcanal, a little place called Tulagi. Guadalcanal Island, for those of you viewers who can't see, is a big island, um, which sort of has the shape of the state of California. If you turn it sideways, it almost looks like California. And across this Sea Lark Channel from Guadalcanal, some miles, there's Florida Island, which looks a little bit like the British Isles, you know, if you, I mean, not exactly, but both turn on their side. Just off of Florida Island, there's a small island called Tulagi. And Tulagi Island is, was, the, was the capital, the British capital of what was in the British Solomon Islands. And the, the Japanese had come in and run the British off uh, several months before and, um, and had taken control of Tulagi. And Tulagi in a small island off of Tulagi, uh, Gavatu, is where the Japanese had their seaplanes, where their air power was located for controlling that section of the Solomon Islands at the time. In the meantime, they were building a large airstrip on Guadalcanal. But what had to happen before, you know, um, we could actually move into Guadalcanal and try to secure that, we had to secure um, and take and dis- defeat the Japanese forces on Tulagi, okay? Uh, if, if any of your viewers or listeners have, have seen the HBO series, The Pacific, um, if you've seen that, you, you know, What happens at Guadalcanal initially is a fairly accurate representation because our Marines went into Guadalcanal largely initially the first few days without much opposition. The Japanese began to counterattack. But Tulagi had to be taken before we could even do that. And so General Rupertus, working with General Vandegrift, Rupertus was given the responsibility of taking his Marines and their task force into Tulagi to attack it, to defeat it, and to secure it. Before we could even move on to Guadalcanal, because the last thing we needed was the Japanese to be able to hit us by the air with with their their seaplanes located on Guadalcanal and too.
1: Okay. Now,
2: you're seeing here basically the direction of the naval task forces that came in and the task force broke um, just southwest of an island called Sabo, in which one task force, which brought General Vandegrift's uh, group in, sailed basically to the south, waiting to come on to Guadalcanal. The, first, the other task force commanded by General Rupertus moved in position to attack Tulagi, which those operations began on August 7, 1942. On the morning of August 7, 1942, again, we haven't gone into Guadalcanal yet until we first hit Tulagi. Rupertus is assigned with responsibility of hitting Tulagi and hitting Gavatu as well. He's given air power initially from three U.S. carriers the Wasp, the Saratoga, and the Enterprise who are positioned south of Guadalcanal and flying their missions over the top of Guadalcanal. Remember, Guadalcanal was not yet um, as organized a Japanese stronghold to hit Florida Island, to hit Tulagi Island, and to hit various other points in order to give us a little bit of a, of a beachhead going in. What we're seeing now is a little bit of a closer look on the general area there between Guadalcanal and Tulagi. You can see the sea lark channel is 20 some miles apart. Task Force Yoke, Task Force Yoke was a task force, the Marine Task Force, and, and that part of the division, 2,500 submarines Marines under, under, under the command of General Rupertus. In the meantime, General Vandegrift took his ships to wait off the coast of Guadalcanal for the operations against Tulagi. A Little closer view here of Tulagi and the islets off of it, Tanambu and, excuse me, Gavatu and Tanambogo. they were connected by a little land bridge literally several hundred yards off the off the southeastern coast of Tulagi. And if you look at Tulagi, the Japanese were concentrated in the southeastern portion of that island. That'll become significant in a second because Rupertus pulled a very daring maneuver in attacking Tulagi on that morning because we wanted to hit them by surprise, if at all possible. What we're seeing here is a map of Tulagi Island. And if you'll notice in the far right-hand corner, the southeast sort of most of the Japanese Forces are there. Rupertus' daring maneuver here is that he sent his men into Beach Blue up along um, to the northwest of where the Japanese were located. It was a daring and unexpected amphibious invasion. By the way, this is our first amphibious invasion of, of, um, of, of the war. And so, so Rupertus, at least in the Pacific, so Rupertus goes in. And the reason it's daring is because that whole area off Beach Blue is full of coral reef. So you cannot even get landing craft initially up onto the beach because of the coral reef. So you have to stop several hundred yards, jump out of the, of the landing craft, and then wade in. The Japanese are not expecting the attack here. They think an attack is coming, but they have fortified in the southeastern part. So the rangers under Colonel Edson, under the general's command, hit into uh, this area off Beach Blue and then begin moving down to the southeast quadrant of the island coming in to uh, hit the Japanese from behind and surprise them. They were able to pull that maneuver off. We're seeing some photographs, actual photographs now of the U.S. Marine Raiders coming on board on the morning of August 7th, 1942, uh, there at, um, at Beach Blue on Tulagi. This is approximately almost three years to the date um, from Hiroshima and, and, you know, from the atomic uh, attacks in Japan. So just to give us an idea where we were. But again, we got to have a victory on the ground here. What we're seeing here are photographs taken from a U.S. Navy plane showing the direction under which the Edison's um, raiders are moving to the south um, east to attack the Japanese enclave. They got across this big ravine and they do essentially come in from that behind and surprise the Japanese and hit them there. We're seeing here another map of the positioning between Tulagi, which was the which was the first ground invasion. Uh, that was launched by the by the first Marines and the islands of Tanambogo and Gavatu, especially where we have seaplanes as well. We see that it's at zero, eight in the morning when the raiders hit Tulagi initially and begin to move their uh, forces to the southeast. And then uh, the uh, first Marine Paratro- paratroop battalion, which was activated at the time, hits. Gavatu at about noon, and they both run into very, very fierce resistance. So again, unlike what we we saw accurately in the Pacific series, uh, when when Vanikiss Marines go initially onto Guadalcanal without resistance, Rupertus's Marines here are going into the teeth of resistance. We're showing some photographs again from U.S. Navy photographs of the cricket grounds burning. Um, you know, as the, as our Marines are moving again to the southeast. We, uh, trying to put a stranglehold on the Japanese forces there. It's a photograph of Tulagi Island. Um, We're showing now a map of Gavatu and Tanambogo. These were considered islets. They rise up out of the Pacific and they're connected by this this dam or this land bridge, as you can see. And so at about noon, the 1st Paratroop Battalion hits there, again under heavy fire. This battle on Gavatu will go on from the 7th into the 9th before we finally get it secure. Photographs here of Gavatu and Tanambogo burning as we have to route the Japanese out there. What we're seeing now is a kind of a, a map of where the troop ships were located. The Neville was the ship, the flagship that General Rupertus was on. And we see several other ships here the President Jackson, the Hayward, and others. And so they would run in to beach blue from these positions off the shore, bringing our Marines in as they would hit the ground. Um, Here's another map of Tulagi and Gavatu so you can sort of see them together. And again, showing the first uh, Marines coming in, the first Raider Regiment coming in at 8 a.m. on the 7th. And then four hours later, the operations commenced on Gavatu. I mentioned earlier Savo Island. Savo Island, as it turns out, is the second largest naval disaster in history after Pearl Harbor for the United States. And so what had happened, as I mentioned earlier, our U.S. Navy scored perhaps the most magnificent uh, victory in the history of the U.S. Navy. Some like got Trafalgar in some ways at Midway when those six carriers were sunk through a combination of timing and weather and all that sort of thing. Uh, but even though we really weakened the japanese navy their cruisers and their destroyers and their their heavy their heavy attack weapons were still available and they were going to be coming in here through through this uh, you know through this nightly pineapple express coming down the sleeve which I'll talk about in a second and they basically hit our uh, our several of our ships in a surprise attack on the night of august 9th and sent them all to the bottom and it turned out to be a naval disaster we lost over a 1000 men the numbers are actually in the, uh, in the book, but because of this, you know, the Navy made a decision to pull those carriers out. We, you know, we didn't want to run the risk of, of, of that. And so the Marines were basically left without a lot of protection for a while. Um, There's another uh, map here of what happened at Saba Island with these ships, Astoria, the Quincy, the Vincennes, all those went down. A number of the ships showing went down and these were the cruisers and destroyers that were out there to the north West that was supposed to be guarding the approach and protecting the Marines as they came in first to Tulagi and then to Guadalcanal. Uh, this turned out to be a naval disaster. Uh, Somehow we got through it. Go ahead, Amy. Yeah, let me jump saw.
1: in there. Um, yeah. So during this time, um, General v- Vandergriff was alerted back on Guadalcanal that the Navy Navy were getting tense and they wanted to pull out earlier than they had planned to. And the Navy had all the supplies for the Marines, the food, you know, the ammunition, all the stuff. <laughs> they were going to unload and use on Guadalcanal and Tulagi. Um, so Vandergrift left Guadalcanal in the evening to, um, if you were looking at a map, you'd see Guadalcanal and then Tulagi and the Florida Island, you know, there's about 20 miles distance. So he's right. going um, from Guadalcanal to go find General Purvis to tell them, the Navy's pulling out, you need to unload whatever you can. Well, Vandergrift kind of gets a little lost and he... Right. Um, eventually gets um, to find Rupertus and, you know, Rupertus was on the beach. And so he we went out and they met on the USS Neville and, and Vandergriff said, the Navy's pulling out, you know, you need to alert your Marines to unload as much as you can as, as possible. And while Vandergriff was coming over, they witnessed before he even saw Rupertus, the Battle of Savo Island had started. And so um, the, it was, obviously a very tense time, um, but Rupertus, you know, came right back and they unloaded as much as the supplies they could and then the Navy did leave and it's, it, it, they don't, I don't know if in the Pacific it really is, um, it was really scary for the Marines because here they are in the Pacific without enough food, without enough water and my Aunt Joe, who um, husband, whose husband was also in the Pacific, always used to say Oh, those poor Marines were all alone, and I never knew what she meant until I actually studied this and and learned um, from different diaries of what happened. And um, yeah. uh, I think in the book we've done a great job to to honor the sh- the um, the ships that went down and the lives that were lost. I and mean, it was really just devastating. Um, but the Marines survived as they 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 tend to do, and. Um, Uh, the Japanese had left when the Marines landed on Guadalcanal, the Japanese had taken off and left food on the table. They, you know, went more inland and they left food on the table, they let communication equipment. Um, So the Marines on Guadalcanal um, had had some benefits over there, but um, it was a really hairy time.
2: Yeah, Yeah, and there were actually Battle of Sava Island, part one and part two. And what Amy mentioned, if you look into this map, Rupertus, uh, excuse me, Vanikriff was now uh, off of Lunga Point, and the ships were there. His transport group was larger than you can see. There are twice as many ships on the Guadalcanal transport group, and so he goes in a boat across this, you know, Sea Lark Channel. They're looking for General Rupertus, who is on board USS Haywood. They finally find him, but they're seeing these explosions off to their off to the west, and these explosions are the, the first attack on these cruisers and several of the cruisers going down, they can see, uh, you know, off to the side, it's certainly a terrifying thing that the Japanese did come back. And by that time, Admiral Scott had taken command of the, of the U.S. naval forces and, and executed a, a strategy to block and to intercept the Japanese and turn them back. But even after that, when you look at the movie The Pacific, you you see, you know, even, you know, when we see the story of, of the great John Bassalone and, and uh, the, the the Americans, the Marines are being hit almost every night from these ships coming down uh, down the sleeve from New May, from, uh from uh, you know from New from uh, New Britain as we'll see in a moment. But it was a, a very very hairy time. It's a photograph of General Rupertus on, on with his staff uh, at uh, at Tulagi, and General Rupertus is on the, the the middle row there, uh, sitting kind of by himself and. Uh, uh it's a very excellent excellent photograph photograph that was taken So again
1: Amy Amy? it's a pretty famous photo um but yeah according our our grandfather's diary I mean there was constant threat from uh the air from the sea it was code red green red green and this was going on for you know weeks at a time um so keep going All, all the time that's a pretty famous uh picture in marine world and some world war ii history pacific um of the people officers who took tulagi to and men so. right. we
2: have a couple of a uh, couple of headlines there the sunday star in washington dc announces navy op you know launches an offensive against the solomons we did not know where it was all sort of speculative we didn't know if it was guadalcanal or someone else somewhere else but they did a pretty good job of getting the story kind of right um What I'm showing here is uh, Lunga Point. I know you're very familiar with all this, uh, Craig, where the uh, First Marines were setting up and trying to establish a perimeter around the The airfield the Japanese had started to build because that was really the big grand prize of uh, of Guadalcanal. This is showing, depicting the situation on August 12th. Now, remember, August 7th was D-Day at Tulagi. By the 9th, we'd scored our first victory on the ground. Uh, General Rupertus and his Marines had had won, had taken Tulagi, which fell the eighth. And then then the next day, the following day, uh, Guapatu and Tamambogo fell. But we had a lot of work to do now that we secured uh, those two places to get moving on Guadalcanal. What we're seeing here is uh, the the Solomon Islands. And you can see this is a more modern uh, map, but we see where Guadalcanal is located. And the uh, Marine, the Japanese were coming down the sleeve, kind of like the middle of this, this whole section of islands. I'm going to pull away for a little larger uh, f- uh, map here. They were coming out of Rabul, which is um, on uh, the island of New Britain. And uh, General Van, General Rupertus would later become involved in fighting there in New Britain. Well, I'll talk about that in a second. But where this red map is located is basically the the, the uh, route that a Japanese Navy would come down almost nightly to hit Marines on, in the Solomon Islands, especially on Guadalcanal. We're seeing here again, um, the juxtapositions of Savo, Tulagi, Florida Island, and Guadalcanal, the entire area that had to be controlled. And interestingly, General Vandegrift, General Rupertus we see here would, would go back and forth between Tulagi and Guadalcanal across this sea lark channel, which later became Known as iron bottom sound on one of these navy uh, yard patrol boats. I mean, they were. It was a dangerous thing just to cross that yeah, place. And this, uh, this is taken on the Tulagi side. Is that right, Amy? Your grandfather? Yeah, and
1: he's jumping out of. I believe that's a an old tuna boat. Tuna, boot, tuna boat.
2: <laughs> right. Back, back
1: um, yeah, he really liked those, and those. Uh, he really thought that the YP boats. Uh, he really appreciated their the work and he always would look at when they would go from t- these boats they were former tuna boats um, that would go from Tulagi to Guadalcanal bringing marines uh, supplies back and forth and they really put themselves at great risk um, and uh, so that's he's jumping out of one when you're bit. taking
2: your life in your hands every time you're crossing that sea lark channel because the naval danger the Japanese continue to bring in they're still continuing to load troops onto Guadalcanal as they're doing this as well um, and here we see Sabo Island becomes known as Iron Bottom Sound. That really uh, traced back to the first battle of Sabo Island, you know, when we lost so many ships there. And again, this is showing the defensive perimeter that we kind of built with our Marines around um, that Lunga Point area as the Japanese continued to sort of build up really on both perimeters on the, the east and the west. Again, another, another photo showing after the battle of Edson Ridge, which, I contend is the second major battle on Guadalcanal. There were a number of skirmishes, but three big battles of which General Rupertus commanded the final one. And I'll talk about that in a second. Um, the battles, Battle of Teneru, some call it Alligator Creek, Battle of Edson's Ridge, and then the Battle of Henderson Field with the final battle, which we'll talk about in a second, on Guadalcanal. We're showing some pictures here snapped after, off of Alligator Creek or the Battle of Teneru. The Japanese attempted a major offensive, again, to come into the, perimeter and to break the perimeter that the Marines had set around Lunga Point. Um, this is a, a map showing the battle for Henderson Field. And you, of course, you know that better than me, Craig, but they try to basically a battering ram type of maneuver to try to push up into the weak side of the Marines' uh, defensive perimeter. And this is when John Bassalone basically showed his great heroics. Um, at, at But here's the rest of the story that a lot of folks don't know. And we do uh, supplement and correct the historical record. Um, General Vandegrift had left uh, Guadalcanal and had gone to New Caledonia for meetings with Admiral King. He left Admiral General Rupertus uh, in command during the final battle from the 24th to the 26th. And Rupertus actually wound up commanding the, the final battle and the, the largest battle there at uh, Guadalcanal. There, there were other skirmishes afterwards, but this basically, I would contend, both the, the backs of the Japanese as a force to be contended with on the ground. You're seeing a sorry, photo.
1: Don, let me jump yes, in there ma'am. real quick. Yes, ma'am. So um, uh, the commandant, Holcomb, had come to Guadalcanal to um, get Vandegrift and go up to uh, meet Admiral Halsey and Numia, Numia to advocate for the Marines because they did need more, equi- more right. equipment. And it was during this time, my, in my grandfather's diary, um, again, General Curtis, um, he's over on Tulagi, and he, he was going back and forth. But uh, General Vandegrift called him over, and in his diary, he says, "I'm to command in Arthur's absence." Right. So Vandegrift called
2: him back a- across the sound
1: yes, to so take command
2: while he was out of out of town, and it just so happened the Japanese started their offensive during that time period. And Vandegrift flew back in, I believe, on the 26th, the day that the final day of the battle, if I'm not mistaken. But it's a, it's a kind of an unknown part of history as to how that came down. So we're we're taking care of that. It's a photograph of um, Admiral Nimitz awarding the General Navy Cross, August first, nineteen forty-two, for his his command at Tulagi. Um, now here's an interesting story: the first Marines went to uh, Australia for respite and respite, re, you know, to recover and to uh, basically to battle, you know, the dang fever and malaria. A lot of them had more than half the division had malaria. Well, during that time. General Rupertus was assigned to be the escort officer for a period of time for Eleanor Roosevelt, who came to Australia uh, representing the Red Cross. And when Eleanor Roosevelt came to Australia, it drove all the American and allied commanders bananas because, one, you got to impress the First Lady of the United States, and and then, two, you've got security issues. But the general was also uh, not just a fierce warrior but but a diplomat. And here we see a picture of the First Lady and the General in Australia. After the visit, uh, and, and I think Amy has document this very well uh first lady wrote the general a letter a handwritten letter thanking him for escorting him and we have that and discuss that in the book and this is a letter from the first army corps september 16, 1943 three brigadier general byers writing on behalf of of uh, general admiral nimitz thanking excuse me admiral uh, general macarthur thanking general Rupertus for so well serving the first lady I want to talk about a little bit the movement of the Pacific War after um, the Marines were done at the Guad- at, uh, Australia. In Australia, Vannegrift was called away, and, and now, um, at this point, uh, Rupertus is named as the sole commander of the 1st Marine Division. And so, as you know, uh, Craig, uh, the American forces were involved in this island-hopping campaign, eventually to strangle strangulate Japan and maybe even to invade. And um, the first Marines had fought so valiantly that this is sort of unknown as well. But there was a political tug of war going on between Nimitz and MacArthur over who was oh, the yeah. commander. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah that. So, you,
2: so you know, there the, never has been a personality, maybe in the U.S. military, like Douglas MacArthur. But uh, uh, at any rate, uh, MacArthur wanted the Marines under his command, and uh, and you know, Roosevelt had a unique way of arbitrating these things, and so MacArthur got his wish, and so the Marines were initially trans- we're, we're transferred to uh, General MacArthur's command in New Britain. Here we have New Britain. And remember a moment ago, we showed that map of Numea, which is at the the here at the uh, northeastern corner of New Britain, which is where the Japanese Navy had consolidated. Admiral Yamamoto had gone there. Um, uh, he was later shot down by the U.S. Army uh, Air Force, flying a reconnaissance mission from there. But... Uh, but MacArthur wanted to continue strangling and tighten the Japanese. So, you know, we'd gone into Bougainville and we'd taken those islands. MacArthur wanted to put a stranglehold around them by moving into New Britain on the other side. So, Cape Gloucester is located at the opposite end of New Britain from Noumea. So, it was, uh, you'll appreciate this as a Canadian. Uh, I suppose you're Canadian, uh, Craig. You're in Montreal, yeah. but I don't want to assume anything. But you, you, you Canadians and your British uh, brothers and sisters appreciate Boxing Day, and so do I. So it was Boxing Day 1943 uh, that uh, the 1st Marine Division under General Rupertus commenced operations against Cape Gloucester. Here's a better map of New Britain. You can see us off of the New Guinea coast, and um, you can see Rabul, where the Japanese were located. So uh, military operations were started that day under some very, uh, very rough waters. And this is a remarkable photograph of the landing on New Britain. As you can see, uh, U.S. Marines going, storming through very rough waters. A photograph here of uh, General Rupertus raising the American flag once they had established a beachhead. Uh, New Britain um, is one of those things, you know, when you, when you see, if you've seen the Pacific, they call it a green monster. So, I mean, the, the, the rain, the monsoons and the, and the rainy season we almost as much of a, uh, of a challenge like they were sometimes in Guadalcanal as were the Japanese. But some remarkable photographs of New Britain and for... Can you um,
1: back up to that, John? Go mean, ahead. John,
2: you um, want to, last photo, Amy, did you said? Yeah. Okay, okay, go ahead.
1: So here they had just captured the airport and they're actually praying for the lives that were lost. So for the uh, listeners who were looking at it, it's a pretty famous picture of... Um, on Cape Gloucester, there's a plane, I don't know if that's a Japanese plane, um, zero, but it's on the ground, um, blown up, but they're, they're, the Marines are all, their heads are bowed um, underneath the American flag and they're, they're actually pre- praying, there's a chaplain there and for the lives that were lost, taking Cape Gloucester and um, uh, getting the airport. So it's pretty and powerful.
2: Just, just this remarkable photography, this map is showing where the Marines came in. They came in on two beaches, and the Japanese, of course, were entrenched. And so they got into a firefight there to, uh, from Suicide Creek to Hill 660, uh, which is where the Japanese were entrenched. And it was really, really literally like a, a jungle-infested hill that our Marines have to go up the side of, and it was just really rough going. When St. Uh, Gloucester fell, uh, the Marines received a congratulatory letter via radio from President Roosevelt. And this is a photograph of General Robertus reading that photogra- that letter to the troops. So the president, the entire uh, U.S. military, and the allies were very much aware of what was going on. A little closer view of that is a very moving photograph. After, after uh, this is an interesting photo because after uh, New Britain, the the Marines had, again needed uh, rest, you know, some rest and relaxation. Remember, after Solomon Islands or after Guadalcanal, they got to go to. Uh, you know, Australia. Australia, everybody loves Australia, unless you're locked out with COVID there now, but everybody loves Australia, but in this case, it wasn't to be, so they go to a place called Pavuvu, um, which, Pavuvu, Pavuvu, which is a jungle-infested <laughs> place, and wasn't so great for the morale, but uh, General Purtis heard that Bob Hope was nearby, and another island, what was the other island, do you remember, Amy? Danica. Okay, and so, so the general um, sense for Bob Hope, Bob Hope comes over, and <laughs> entertains uh, the troops on Pavuvu, and here's a shot that was taken of that uh, with the General City Messiah, Bob Hope, who was great. Probably a little before your time, Bob Hope, uh, Craig, but I remember when Bob Hope was even in Vietnam, he was a great guy, you know, always entertained the troops. An overall map of the sweep of, again, the island hopping campaign, because after after New Britain, the next step was Peleliu, and Peleliu, of course, um, was was a controversial strategic decision. There was a lot of you know, back and forth on, on whether to go there or not. General MacArthur, by this time, the 1st Marine Division has now been given back to Nimitz, okay? Yes. So MacArthur has lost control of it. However, um, you know, MacArthur, you know, sort of left the Philippines and, you know, for him in disgrace, but he promised I shall return. He was hoping to do that. If you look at where Peleliu is located, uh, uh, you know, near Mindano, it's several hundred miles off the southeastern Philippine coast. So MacArthur initially felt that securing Peleliu would give him a better chance of, you know, of going into the Philippines because the Japanese were heavily entrenched there.
0: Oh, if I can say something.
2: Go right ahead, brother. Yes, sir. For
0: for the audience, because this, uh, it's important for those who don't know, it is a very controversial battle because MacArthur the entire time during the Pacific war was, like you said, fighting to go take back the Philippines. Right. So there was a divide argument at this point where, they could bomb mainland islands of Japan because they had the Marianas, so they didn't. They didn't really need to take the Philippines necessarily. They could go another route, but MacArthur eventually will win out the day, and he needed to neutralize Peleliu because I think it was argument was an airfield maybe could yes, hinder correct. operations against correct, the Philippines. Correct. There you go.
2: And you're right, Craig. And just to add that a little bit, the U.S. Navy um, admirals King, admirals Nimitz were pushing more toward an argument of. You know, hitting Japan directly, as I recall, uh, MacArthur wanted. To, you know, he wanted to have it. Um, you know, he wanted to have it his way, and and Roosevelt initially, <laughs> he took the first Marine division back from MacArthur, but let him. You know, so they did go into Peleliu, and the thing about Peleliu, it, it turned out to be one of the bloodiest. Um, yeah. You know, uh, you know battles, and uh, and what had happened. A lot of people don't realize is the Japanese essentially changed their battle tactics. Um, it, you know, we we saw, again, if you go back, and I'm, I'm sure a number of your viewers and listeners, you know, saw the docudrama of the Pacific, and I, I saw it, you know, and part, partly I wanted to see it because I was, we were working on this book at the time, I wanted to see how it was portrayed there. But, you know, the General General Vannegrist, 1st Marine Division, weighed onto the shores of Guadalcanal, and the Japanese strategy has been kind of let them come in, let them come in, let them come in, and then we attack, okay? So you draw them in and attack. At Peleliu, they totally... Reverse that, and so you're, you know, they almost did that, you know, when, from a microcosms example back at at uh, Tulagi into a lesser extent, um, Gavatu, but there's no place for them to run and hide; those places are so small. But at Peleliu, you know, they rather than than dig in, they hit us very very hard at the beaches and on the beaches. So it will become a it will become based upon that a, a more difficult struggle. Um, the army was involved; we brought the army in eventually there. But you can see the strategic thinking was generally driven by General MacArthur because initially he wanted his right flank protected as he moved into the Philippines. He did get his right flank protected at a, at a rather high cost. But we have a few photographs um, from Peleliu. This is the um, General Rupertus and several. Over, overseeing a, uh, a burial service there. I believe that's Chesty Puller right beside him. Is that correct? Um,
1: yeah. Amy? So, so a lot, these are here are a lot of the officers and yeah, Tolu is, um, you know, one of the things our grand, I meant to jump in a couple of places, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, our grandfather in the Marines had been in the Pacific for a while. And, um, when he went, when they landed in Pavuvu, you know, after they were finally released from MacArthur and, um, could go get under Nimitz. They were, went, went to Pavuvu. Rupertus had been trying. Vandergriff wanted Rupertus to get back in March 1944, but because of um, MacArthur wouldn't release him, he had to go right when the Marines landed in Pell and Pavuvu and were safe. You know, they were at an island <laughs> it wasn't, it turned out not to be so good. Looked good from the outside, but um, it got better when the Seabees came. Pavuvu did. But anyway, our grandfather so went back. With his uh, chief of staff, Colonel Selden, they advocated to, for the Marines in Washington, and basically uh, the headquarters said, some can come home, but we need trained officers to stay, and we need, you know, the men to stay. We're not, we don't have enough people. To, and, uh, and it goes back to the original please. point.
2: Uh, uh, Repertus commanded this division longer than anyone. They needed relief. They probably needed relief before Pillaloo, but weren't able to get it for logistical reasons and other reasons. Um, so-
1: yeah, Palu is a fascinating, and I as I was doing this research, I found um, um, this the plan for uh, the Japanese plan for building and staffing the whole um, underground tunnels and everything. It, yeah, the limestone
0: uh, hill that they had the old miners. Right, shaft, and it was right. really and big. Uh, yeah.
1: it, right. I found it was from the Army U.S. Army's Demobilization Bureau, and they had um, translated these documents and. Um, unfortunately, because word count, I couldn't put it in the whole book. We couldn't put it in the book, but um, it talks about the whole engineering plan um, for basically killing as many American Marines and our American military as possible. And um, uh, between the connected tunnels and where they could hide, hide out. Um, I mean, we had been bombing them since March. Some people say that we only were bombing them for th- bombing Palu for three days we had been bombing them since march so you think we would have made some progress and so i think there was a lot of um uh belief that the naval bombing had
0: well they um, they thought that they had taken out most of the japanese yeah they had not even touched them basically and
2: you know and our intelligence you know it was an intelligence failure for whatever reason um and and i think it might be argued and maybe you'll agree with this or not craig but the peluru was the beginning Basically, the shift in the Japanese war fighting strategy on these islands. I mean, you, you see it replicated at Iwo Jima.
0: Course, Okinawa Iwo Jima was at, a big one after that.
2: Exactly. So this was the beginning of of a new strategy we had not seen. Um, in this photograph, General Robertus is standing. here. There are four crosses, and he is standing one to the just above the third cross to the right, and just to his. To the right of the screen, to his left is Ch- Chesty Puller, who, of course, was involved in the initial. Chesty was on the ground on D-Day at um, at Pearl, and that was really uh, really something. Some other photographs here, and Amy. feel free to jump in. Uh, taken on yeah, so I yeah.
1: think. Um, uh, the best. If, I'm sure your listeners or many of them have read uh, "With the Old Breed" by yeah, Eugene Fudge. That is a great book on the boots on the ground and the. Horror they experienced throughout the Pacific, particularly Pelu. Um, um, the fact that they prevailed is just awe-inspiring, um, despite, you know, ev- everything they went through. But here's a picture of my grandfather, our grandfather, checking in on the Marines. So the, for the listeners who can't see this, there's, uh, this is Peleliu Island. There, uh, there's a Jeep and there are a bunch of uh, wounded Marines on it, our grandfathers talking to them and on the beach and seeing how they're doing. Um, He had, you'll see in some pictures uh, that he had injured himself. Um, He was getting better here, but he had been getting in a during, back in um, the training for Pavuvu, he had been getting into a uh, boat and he grabbed a handle, a transport boat. He'd been going between islands and he grabbed a handle and the handle, canvas handle had disintegrated and split and he fell down on some coral, and he hurt his ankle. And so that's why it's wrapped with a picture of Bob Hope, and that's why he's, he has a cane here. Um, but, uh, you know, it's um, a pretty powerful picture.
2: And he was, he remained in command, I think until November. Um, this was a joint operation with the Army, as you know, Craig, and the Army came in and, and, and began to relieve the Marines after several weeks. And, um, and the general, say again, Amy?
1: Yeah, so the um, 1st Marine Division, the Army took over on October 20th. Um, and most of the Marines went back to Pavuvu, their favorite place, but by then the Seabees had done a great job and it was much nicer. Um, and our grandfather stayed there till November 4th and then he flew back home to Washington with Geiger and about uh, 3,500 Marines. So.
2: And from there was assigned command of the Marine Corps schools in Quantico. And Marine Corps schools, uh, we were using Marine Corps schools basically you know, to train officers for the Pacific War largely. So they had the right guy for the school. He took command of that. They were living in Quantico. And, um, and then, Annie, why don't you share how your grandfather passed away?
1: Yeah, so um, he uh, basically, they he got back to Quantico, um, picked my sleepy and my dad up from Washington, D.C. They lived in Quantico um, in officers' quarters, and he was coming out of the Marine Corps schools. Um, he was given the – there was a big ceremony that we actually have on – on old film um, of him receiving uh, uh, receiving the Distinguished Service Medal from the Navy uh, for Peleliu. And um, uh, that was a big event there. Um, He did a a bunch of talks, PR for war bonds and that sort of thing. Um, And he he and Sleepy and my dad, we're going up to Washington to the Marine Barracks for a big party, a reunion of First Marine Division, old veterans of the First Marine Division, um, in March 1945. Um, and at that party, he went outside and um, uh, sat down and had a heart attack, and he died on those the steps. Um, and he, if you read the book, we talk about Colonel Kilmartin um, back in Guadalcanal. Well, he he was really cared for, Colonel. Kilmartin and um he, this is he died on Colonel Kilmartin's steps.
2: Colonel Kilmartin um, had been the general's chief of staff yeah. during the initial evasion and I have okay. a picture here to Amy right behind your head there if you see what she has uh the Navy very quickly uh honored the general by naming uh USS Rupertus a destroyer in his honor and we're seeing a picture of Amy's grandmother um at the shipyard in Massachusetts um christening mm-hmm. that ship and uh no higher honor does Navy give than the name of ship after you. So, uh,
1: so Don, I just want to um, jump through. Um, uh, Craig, how are we doing on time? I can zip through ready these up? pretty quickly. Okay, ready? so um, maybe, um, Don, is this... You want to
2: jump it? in with your PowerPoint and show a couple of things, Amy?
1: Yeah, let me, let's try that.
2: Okay, stand by. I'm going to jump off here, Craig. I'm going to stop the share and let her... She's got a couple of things here. You ready?
1: Yeah. Okay, so really quickly, this was his... Uh, I'm just going to... So uh, pe- people are listening, I'm just showing quickly a picture of German-American family in Washington, pictures of Bill and the Revenue Cutter School, or Grant Major General Purtis as uh, a young guy, at the Re- cadet at the Revenue Cutter School.
2: Which is the pre-runner uh, of the Coast Guard Academy, by the
1: way. Right, okay. and then here's a picture of him with the president of Haiti um, back in uh, late 1919, uh, and... Um, here are pictures of him and the uh, uh, Marine officers in Peking. There he is. And his. you saw that picture earlier um, with his two children. Again, they're buried with his first wife um, at Arlington Cemetery. Um, here's a picture. Um, I said you know, it was kind of calm in uh, Peking when he was there. And the Marines were told to play polo, particularly the Marine officers, to stay in shape. So here he is. Um, Here's a picture. uh, I mentioned Roy Chapman Andrews. He's right next to him um, with two other Marine officers. Um, Here's a kind of uh, picture of him again at the Peking racetrack. That was a real popular place for people to be. Um, uh, The Marines would march there, but also they'd they'd play polo, um, which is kind of funny. Here's a picture of Sleepy and Bill Rupertus. Um, And then here's a actually this picture you look at um you can find it online on google um but this is actually a picture that don found online while he was researching his last book uh the last fighter pilot and he asked me if this was uh, my grandfather in this picture and um indeed it was and here they are at the french club in shanghai dressed up in black tie the marine officers and some naval officers um it's the calm before the storm um I have some pictures in this um, doc or this slideshow of uh, after the bombing of Shanghai and where the Marines are hunkered down and um, also some pictures of the devastation as well as, um, well, more devastation and bodies. Um, uh, Anyway, so we've just going along that, we've got different um, other different uh, maps And one thing I wanted to bring up uh, is the importance of the natives in the Pacific and the coast watchers. Um, I'm sure many of you know about the coast watchers that um, were plantation owners and and people that were used to watching, uh, being near the coast, watching the coast. Uh, They really helped the Marines in the Pacific, especially our grandfather on Tulagi and working with the natives. Um, The natives were very supportive. We've actually got a letter from a native chief to our grandfather, telling him he's working on rounding up uh, uh, different chiefs to help help the Marines and um, that sort of thing. So we've got some pictures of that. Um, one thing that maybe people don't know is Dr. Seuss was very involved with um, yeah. the effort. <laughs> and so he sent a couple of Marines and other people um, uh, the Society of Red Tape Cutters award. And so we have a picture of that. You can Google those, too. It's the Society of Red Tape Cutters. Um, but it's actually in collaboration with a newspaper editor, John Lewis. Um, and then here's a picture of him in, uh, uh, watching. There's a famous parade. Two things happened in, in Australia that were really important. One, the Marines came in, and it was like an invasion. And, um, the uh, Australian men were not there, (laughs) for the most part. So when the Australian men who had been fighting um, in Europe and Africa came back, um, all these Marines, US Marines were there. And um, dating their girls and and that sort of thing. So Rupertus um, and his officers thought of a plan to have a party. And they were gonna have a party with the Australian men the Australian military and the Marines um, on the cricket field. And there was gonna be beer and they wanted them to have fellowship and camaraderie and play some games and get to know each other. And the only caveat was that the beer needed to be in paper cups.
0: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I heard of this, yes.
1: And so as it turned out, there were no fights. They got to uh, be good friends. And there's, uh, I think Australians tend to have a good memory of this time, um, mostly. Um, And there was also a parade. So the, uh, and here is a picture of my grandfather saluting uh, the Marines as they went by in the Marine band parade in February, 1943. Um, uh, Yeah, so here's some pictures from Peleliu. These are from the Marine Corps. These are also in the book. Um, And then here's a really interesting picture um, that is in the book and it's the, our grandfather and the Marine officers Probably, it's probably a snapshot right before they left Peolu. And you can see, he looks like he aged probably a hundred yeah. years. Um, anyway, so here's a picture, um, gets back into Washington. There's my dad, and obviously my dad's real happy to have his dad home. Um, here's, he's he is getting um, the Distinguished Service Medal from the Navy. And you can see his Guadalcanal patch right there um, on his sleeve of, a jacket, of his jacket. Um, here's a picture of um, there's there's an American flag that that was on used on for the Marines on Cape Glou- Gloucester and Peleliu. Um, when my grandfather died, March 1945, um, they raised the um, this same flag um, on Okinawa um, or after he died in his honor. So here's a picture and there's an article um, that we put in the book that about this photo of this um, Marine climbing up these rocks, trying to get the American flag on top of the hill. Um, And then of course, here's Sleepy again. And then here's a picture of the USS Rupertus, a beautiful uh, destroyer. Um, You can see that little USS Rupertus canvas um, uh, label is right behind me here. So, um, years later. so finally, to close this, uh, I don't know, or close our presentation, we've got an on-air interview that he did when he came back, um, our grandfather came back in November 1944 from the Pacific. Um, Craig, do you want me to go ahead and play this? or Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Okay. So it's about th- three minutes long. So do y'all just hang in there and let me start this. Let's see. This should work. It's actually two minutes long, 245.
3: General, which do you consider the toughest of these operations? I don't believe there is any measure of comparison. Each campaign was against the same fanatically determined enemy, and each had its own problems of weather, terrain, and distribution of enemy strength. All the campaigns against the Japanese have been hard, bitterly contested operations that have demanded the utmost of every man engaged in them. I know that every man in every branch of the military service fighting in the Pacific is willing to give, is willingly giving everything he has to achieve a common goal, the complete defeat of the Japanese enemy. If that aim is to be reached, the people back home, each related in blood to a fighting man, must contribute in the same measure. The war against the Japanese is a very personal war. Every bomb and every bullet sounds as though it is meant for you in person. Much of the fighting is at the closest quarters. You are the man that psyche-crazed warrior is charging at as he runs screaming toward your lines. You are the man that gleaming samurai sword is going to cut through if you don't strike first. That's just what we've been doing out there, striking first and striking hard. Well, it seems to have been working pretty well, General. We've gone a long way in the Pacific in the last two years. you think we're close to our goal of complete defeat of the Japanese? The hardest part of the war lies ahead of us. As we get closer to the Japanese homeland, the Japanese determination and fanaticism becomes even greater. Their military strength also increases as we get closer to its source. This is certainly no time to sit back and contemplate our past successes. Rather, we should consider the tremendous task that lies ahead and mentally resolve to match in willing personal contribution inspired by the love of country, the fanatic devotion to the emperor that spurs the Japanese. Well, Friday was the 169th anniversary of the founding of the United States Marine Corps, General. What do you think the 170th year holds for the Corps? I think it will probably be one of the fightingest years in our fighting history. We Marines are naturally proud of our past achievements, and as a Marine, I can assure the people of the United States that every man in the Corps will be doing everything he can to sustain our record and justify the motto of the Marine Corps, Semper Fidelis, always faithful. Thank you, General, and I'm sure that every Marine will.
1: All right. We had never heard his voice before until we found this and one other. So it was uh, not exactly what we thought.
0: <laughs> yeah, so. it it's a rare instance that you have uh, surviving audio from that time, which I don't like that. Yeah.
1: Well, there's some fascinating video too. Um, the University of South Carolina Film Lab, so in 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 the states. Um, it uh, has a repository of Marine Corps film um, and film actually from American history and maybe European history that they've, they're storing and uh, keeping so we are, we've been able to find a lot of film that we've not seen before either, through that.
0: Excellent. Is there anything else either of you wanted to say?
1: Uh, Well, I thank everybody who's listening. Um, I know we've talked about a lot. I hope it hasn't been too overwhelming. We put years of battle into (laughs) just a few hours. Um, But I'd say if you have, um, you know, the purpose of me writing this and asking Don to join me on this journey is to get the story down, not only for my family, but for history. I think um, when we take the time to do this, it contributes to the database of history and it fills in the holes. That you know that people don't know about until they know, and this is pretty important history um, that there was a lack of knowledge about from China onward.
0: I can attest; I didn't know much of this story. It's not found anywhere.
1: Yeah.
2: And for your listeners and viewers, Craig, if if you're a history lover, if you're a World War II aficionado, if you're a student of the Pacific, this is like opening up a brand new present under the Christmas tree yeah. are like a new a box of chocolates that Forrest Gump would talk about. It's never been opened before. And so I, I love to read history. I love to read about Gettysburg, about Guadalcanal, about, you know, Normandy. I love to read those stories over and over again, but this is brand new for the first time. And my guess is it will spur others, you know, to, to write and even make film about this, but here's an opportunity to get into something that nobody has ever read before. So I would just encourage um, all your listeners and your and your readers to uh, and your viewers to read this book and let us know what you think and hopefully it'll open up other opportunities for conversation
1: yeah and we have um i don't we didn't talk about show notes but um we have a youtube channel i haven't really publicized it but i put up some some of these films we've found for general robertus mm-hmm. um and also i'd be happy to if anybody's interested in how you know to how to Write their veteran story. Um, I can give you those notes. Um, um, and but to to get the uh, all the references we have, you've got to buy the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so again, it's Old regeneral. General. It's available on um, everywhere online right now. But it's, it'll be shipped probably February first.
2: Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know, Google Books, kids, you University name it.
1: Yeah. It's all there. Yeah, and you can see the reviews we've gotten uh, so far. I think people are appreciating this history because they never knew about it before. We've also
2: been told that Barnes & Noble's taking a pretty good interest in the book and we expect to see the book. You know, Barnes & Noble stores, of course, we don't know with the ever-present situation with the uh, pandemic. Hopefully, it becomes an endemic and continues to shrink. But, um, you know, we're hoping to have a presence there as well. So we'll keep our fingers crossed, the prayers launched, we'll go from there.
0: Yeah, I assure you, everyone in my audience, I implore you to get the book. I'm getting it this week, as I just finished writing something on my own now, so I can finally read something like this. And uh, something I say to my audience a lot, uh, history evolves, we learn new things, and it changes everything. Uh, I, for example, in this entire podcast series, always bring up uh, two books that recently came out about Emperor Hirohito. And the narrative that he was supposedly uh, powerless or at the whim of, you know, his warlord like generals is not true. He was a participant and he made a lot of the decisions that we see. So a yeah. book like you have written could change the course of different battles of the history of the Pacific War as we know it. Yeah. Absolutely
1: well thank you for doing what you do. Uh I really okay. love your channel and, and the Kings and Generals channel and I love history, so onward. <laughs> and
2: one other thing and I'll I'll stop. I know the general felt this way. Amy and I feel this way, but This book is written not only to honor the general, but those men who served under his command. Um, General Colonel Kilmartin, as Amy mentioned, and others, uh, he loved his men. He was a a Marine's Marine. And I know that he would want uh, that to be the case as well. So God bless the United States Marine Corps.
1: all those who served in the Pacific, yeah. Yeah.
0: Thank you very much. It's an honor and a privilege to share this story.
1: Okay, well, thank you. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Thanks, guys. Bye bye.
0: I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com Kings and Generals. Hey, and if after all that you are still hungry for some history content, why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War Channel at YouTube. Over on my channel you will find a few video clips of this very interview where I will showcase everything and compare it to actual combat footage to give a real taste for what the events were like.